Amen. Have you ever wanted something really, really bad? I mean, you want it so bad that it actually keeps you up at night. You spend all of your time thinking about how you can attain or achieve or acquire that thing that you really, 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 really want. It consumes you while you're driving. You're distracted when you're supposed to be working. And all you're thinking about is how to remove the obstacles or do what you need to do to get what you want. I remember as a six-year-old wanting so bad Optimus Prime. Do you remember the Transformer? It was a series of smaller Transformers that all stacked on top of each other, and it made this super mega Transformer good guy. It was Optimus Prime. He was the captain of the Autobots. And I could imagine myself going out and, and destroying the Decepticons, and I just wanted it so bad. But there was just one thing. I didn't have any money. It was $30, and I didn't have transportation, and there was just no way for me to do it, and my parents wouldn't just buy it for me. And so I spent my time wondering, how can I get it? How can I get it? I did get it. I had to wait till Christmas. But a few years later, it was a Nintendo game console. I wanted so bad. I just wanted to play Super Mario Brothers and watch Little Mario and then Big Mario and then Super Firepower Mario go against Bowser and the bad guys and but I wasn't allowed to play video games. So there was just one thing, and I had an obstacle I had to overcome. A little bit later, it was a driver's license. Oh, how I wanted that freedom. I didn't want to pedal everywhere I went. I knew the rules. I knew the laws. I knew I could do it, and I just needed that freedom. There was just one thing. I was only 15. You can't have a driver's license if you're only 15. And so no matter how much you think or hope, you have to wait. You're not going to get it immediately. A little bit later, it was Georgia. <laughs> I really, really, really wanted Georgia. Her long, flowing blonde hair as she'd sit behind the piano. Her beaming blue eyes. It was just an affection. I wanted to have Georgia. There was just one thing. I was a chorus geek, and she was the prom queen, literally. How does the chorus geek get the prom queen? It was a miracle. <laughs> but we all know what it's like to want something really bad and yet have obstacles standing in our way, things that keep us from attaining that thing that we want. It goes on into adult life. We all know the feeling. When you really want that spouse or you really want that house or that job or that promotion and you want it so bad that you just can't stop thinking about it and it seems like looming in front of you are those obstacles those things that are keeping you from attaining and having that thing that you really 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 want well that's what we find in our text in Ruth chapter 4 we left off with Boaz this wealthy Bethlehemite landowner who really 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 wants this woman Ruth a bit younger than she, he is, but who has proposed essentially to him, she's virtuous, she's industrious. We assume that she's beautiful, truly a Moabite, but a diamond in the rough. And he wants her really bad. Her and Naomi have just returned from 10 years in Moab. They're experiencing a little bit of light at the, uh, the, the end of a long, dark tunnel. And a romance is kindled between this Moabite nomadic woman who's now living in Israel 
and this rich Bethlehemite Jew named Boaz, and there's a little bit of suspense where we left off. Now, it's contextually clear that Boaz is interested in Ruth. He wants her really bad, but there's just one thing. There's a couple of obstacles, a couple of things standing in his way. Well, first it was, well, how could I, an older man, win the affections of this younger, beautiful prom queen, if you would? She would never be interested in me. But it turns out that she is. In fact, she comes to him and she proposes. She says, take me under your wing. Spread the border of your skirt over me. Take me to be your handmaid, your wife. Obstacle one has been removed and a little bit of hope is stirred in Boaz. Could it actually happen? Could I get this woman, this beautiful woman? But there's another obstacle. See, she's a Moabite. And it was forbidden for a Jewish man to be married to a Moabite woman. It it wasn't acceptable. At the very least, it would be highly frowned upon for a man of his stature and reputation to take a Moabite to be his wife. But there's a loophole. Because she is linked with Naomi and she is a relative. And so there is a way that he can lawfully, in fact, morally and righteously take her to be his wife. But there's just one thing. There's one person that's just a little bit more qualified to fulfill that role than he is. And until that man releases his right upon this woman, Ruth, he can't have her. And so we can assume it kept him up at night. It's his responsibility now to figure out a way. How can I convince this other man that it's not in his best interest to redeem and take Ruth? And it's the suspense that we were left off with at the end of chapter 3 and the drama we rejoin here in chapter 4. Now, the chapter basically breaks down into three sections, and I'll give them to you to make it easier for you to follow along. The first section is the negotiations and the transaction for Ruth's redemption. That is for Boaz to marry Ruth. Then the second part is the closing of the deal and how that comes about. And then the third part is the outcomes and the conclusions of the book. So a very simple outline of chapter 4, and we'll see how it all applies to us very closely. But we begin in the, uh, the first verse with the negotiations, the removing of the final obstacle for Boaz to acquire Ruth as his wife. Notice with me there in chapter 4, verse 1. It says, now Boaz went up to the gate and he sat down there. Now, in every chapter of Ruth that we've seen thus far, there is a scene, a setting for each of the various chapters. In chapter one, the scene was the countryside of Moab and the path back to Bethlehem. In chapter two, the scene was the fields of Bethlehem where Ruth took a job as a gleaner in Boaz field, the Field of Boaz was the setting for chapter 2. Chapter 3 was the threshing floor, what we saw last week where Ruth snuck in and proposed to Boaz and we saw the interest magnified between the two of them, the threshing floor. And then chapter 4, the scene, the setting, it takes place at the gate. Now, what was the gate? You might be picturing just a big iron door that swings on a stone pillar or on a set of hinges, but the gate of the city spoke of much more than that. In the Bible, the gate of the city, in fact, in Bible times, and not just in Israel, but everywhere in those days, the gate of the city spoke of the government. It was the place where legislation took place, where there was judiciary and legal transactions, where things were done on the record. 
And that'll help you as you read through the Old Testament. Anytime you see that phrase at the gate of the city, that's the context of it. It's always in the place of government where legal transactions were made. And so that's the setting for this. And Boaz now goes up to the gate. And it says that he sat down there and behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by. And so he waits, and sure enough, this man who's a little bit more eligible than him, who has first dibs, if you would, on Ruth's redemption, he finally comes by. It says, so Boaz said, come aside, friend. Sit down here. So he came aside, and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city, and he said, sit down here. So they sat down. Now, Boaz has a plan. He sits at the gate of the city. He waits for the man to come by. And then he calls 10 other men of the elders of the city to sit down as witnesses so that every word that's spoken would be on record. Now, Boaz has a strategy in this. First of all, he has one objective. His objective is to win Ruth. That's what he wants. Now, he knows that in order to obtain her, he has to gain rights to and purchase the land, the land that was owned by Naomi and her now past husband, Elimelech. So in order to get Ruth, he needs the land. So his objective, though, is to get Ruth. And basically, his strategy is going to be twofold in his dealings now with him. And here's what he's going to do. First of all, he needs to find out if this man is even interested. Before he lays out the whole story, he needs to know, does this man want the land at all? And then number two, if he does, then he wants to make it as undesirable as possible. That's his strategy. And so that's how he goes into uh, this whole th thing. So here he goes with phase one. He's going to find out if the man is interested. Notice in verse three. So then he said to the close relative, Naomi has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land which belonged to our brother Elimelech. And I thought to inform you, saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know. I'll consider it. I'll, I'll think about it, perhaps. If, if, of course, you're not interested, of course, you are entitled to it. For there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And so he lays out this thing, this casual pitch, asking this man if he wants to buy the land. Now, understand this that to own land in those days was a big deal. It was the equivalent of capital in our economy, in our understanding of things. To be a landowner in an agrarian society gave you status and reputation. How many acres do you own? How big is your farm? And the size of your estate would be measured by the amount of acres of land that you farmed. It also gave you a greater stake in local government. The more of a stake you had, the more influence you would have in the decisions that would be made. And then also, it was a, 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 an equivalent of wealth. Because the more land you had, the more you could sow, which meant the more you would reap, the more you could sell. And therefore, the more leverage and ability you had to operate economically. And So to have land was a great advantage. And Boaz assumes that this guy is going to want it. And he's right. The man says, huh. This is my right. This is my opportunity. And so at the end of verse 4, it says that he said, I will redeem it. 
So he is interested, and Boaz says, as I suspected. This is exactly what I thought. Now, game on. Because this man wants the land, I want the woman. And whoever gets the land gets the woman too. And so now he enters into phase two of his strategy, and that is to make it as undesirable as possible to him. Now watch this in verse five. So then Boaz said, well, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. Oh, wait a minute. Boaz says, there's an earmark on this bill. There's some pork in this legislation. He he probably wouldn't have called Ruth pork. I, you you know, that that wasn't the idea. You, You know, there was, there was more to it. In other words, there's a catch is what he's saying here, you know, about this. Well, what's that? Well, listen, according to the law, and we've talked about this already, God wanted the land to stay as close as possible to the original owner. Now, when Elimelech died, that is the father, the husband of Naomi, the right for that land went to his sons, Malon and Chilion, who we met back in chapter 1. Now, they both died also, which means that the entitlement of that land then goes to their wives. Now, Orpah, the wife of Chilion, she stayed in the land of Moab, and so she forfeited her right, her claim to this land. But Ruth... She returned with Naomi, and therefore she is linked by right to this land. Therefore, whoever buys this land has to take Ruth and then fulfill the second part of that requirement, which was the Leverite marriage. And that is that that man would have to have a child with Ruth, and that that child would then be the legal heir of that parcel or of that land, so that the name of Malon and Elimelech would continue and go on down through the line. You see, it was the law of redemption coupled with the law of the Leverite, which means this. It means, okay, Boaz is saying, the right of redemption is yours. You can buy the land. But with it, you also have to take Ruth, have a child with her, and that child is going to become the legal heir of that land when you die. Well, oh, wait a minute. Checkmate. He got him. See, here's why. Because now this guy, he knows that if he does it, if he redeems this land, that ultimately he's not going to be able to keep it. He may be able to sow and reap and gain from it during the time of his own lifespan, but as soon as he dies, he relinquishes right and ownership to it, and it goes to the son that Ruth then has. But he also has to feed Ruth and the child and any other kids that they have in the meantime as well. And this is becoming less and less financially advantageous to this man for him to buy this land. However, Boaz, in his wisdom, did this in the city gate, and he did it in the presence of witnesses. Therefore, this man cannot now figure out a way to, I call it, buy and burn Ruth. See, if Boaz had done this back door, if he had just gone to the next of kin and tried to make this arrangement, well, that man could have figured out a way, because there was no witness, to redeem the land, but then somehow not really fulfill his role, his responsibility with Ruth. He could have figured out a way to kind of 
obtain the land for himself, but not have to obtain Ruth totally. But because it's in the presence of witnesses, he loses his ability to do that now. Because it's on record that this has to happen this way. He wins. So watch what happens here in verse 6. And so the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I ruin my own inheritance. You redeem my right of redemption for yourself, for I cannot redeem it. Now, we talked last week about the requirements that were necessary in order for land to be redeemed. First of all, it had to be the closest family relative. This man qualifies. Second of all, he had to be able to afford it. That is, pay the full purchase price debt-free. He could do that. And number three, he had to be willing to do it. And he met all three until this moment. Wherein at this moment, he became unwilling to do it because it would screw up his own inheritance that he was already preparing for his offspring after him. He became unwilling, therefore he becomes disqualified, and the right of redemption is now deferred to Boaz, which is exactly what Boaz wanted. It was his strategy when he went into this thing, therefore he's not qualified. I want to talk to you for a minute, just for a second, about the strategy and the planning that we've seen so far as we've gone through these uh, chapters of the book of Ruth. seems like this is a constant thing that keeps coming up. The book is filled with strategy. We see Boaz securing a place for Ruth in his field when he first met uh, her and saw her. It was strategic. We saw Naomi's counsel to Ruth to stay in Boaz's field, to not be found in another place. It was strategic. We saw the plan that Naomi hatched last week to send Ruth to the threshing floor and to come secretly and dress nicely and to seduce in a sense, but, you know, not seduce in the way that we think, but win this man's affection and attention and propose to him. It was a very strategic move that she made. And then we see here the strategy that uh, Boaz employs in in doing this. And I, I think there's something to it. There are some people that live their life in the Lord without any type of a plan or any type of strategy in their life at all. They just kind of throw everything into the wind and just leave everything up to chance and providence with no thought. They just kind of go. There's no framework at all within their life wherein they see a vision for what God is doing in them and where God is ultimately taking them. Now, that's okay. You're allowed to do that. You have that freedom. But the problem is, oftentimes, is that you miss out on the leading of the Lord as he would seek to bring you to the place that he ultimately has for you. He's seeking to lead you. And so when there's somewhat of a plan, a framework, an understanding, God, what do you want to do with my life, and how am I going to get where I'm going? Then it gives you something to relate to God with as he leads you step by step. Now, there's another extreme to that. There's some people that are so strategic that they map out even what they're going to wear every day of the week before the week even begins. They plan out literally every part of their day, every part of their life. Everything is strategized. And the problem with that is that they often become so dependent upon their own strategy, they fail to seek the Lord and to check in and to see, God, is this your plan? Is this your strategy? Is this what you want for my life? So what's the answer? I think the answer is that there's a balance for us. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, it's a famous verse that you'll know it as soon as I begin to say it. In fact, I don't even have to turn there. That's how common it is. It's trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. 
Well, that verse kind of sounds like, well, hey, I don't need to have a plan. I just need to trust in the Lord and he'll direct me. Yeah, that's true. But the same author, the same wise man who wrote those verses, one chapter later also wrote these verses. He said, get wisdom. Proverbs 4, verse 5. Get, hey, it's the opposite. It's not 3, 5. It's 4, 5. Get wisdom. Get understanding. Do not forget nor turn away from the words of my mouth. Do not forsake her and she will preserve you. Love her and she will keep you. Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. In the NIV version, it says, sell everything you have in order to gain understanding. Now, that's an exhortation unto strategy. Get wisdom. Understand how to apply the knowledge that you have Couple it with an understanding of how life works, how the world works, how the kingdom works, and have a plan for your life. And then live it before the Lord, seeking him, depending on him, and you'll be able to be led by him step by step as he takes you from where you are to where you're ultimately going. Success in that depends on this. Dependence upon and obedience to God with flexibility. I think it's an important balance. We see it throughout the scripture. We see in the life of David and Solomon. We see it with Nehemiah and Ezra. We see it in the early church, and we see it with Paul, that there was a framework. There was strategy. There was a plan. And then God moved within that, sometimes stretching, sometimes, you know, conforming, and he was able to lead his people through it. There's order and there's structure in the kingdom of God, and I believe that there also must be in our lives. It's been well said that if you aim at nothing, you'll hit it every time. And I think we waste a lot of time aiming at nothing if we don't have any strategy at all. Well, we see it here in the text, but now we come to, as we get to verse 7 back in chapter 4 of Ruth, we come to the custom and the closing of the deal. The custom and the closing of the deal that goes with that custom, verse 7. It says, now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm anything, one man took off his sandal And he gave it to the other, and this was a confirmation in Israel. Therefore, the close relative said to Boaz, buy it for yourself. So he took off his sandal. Now, the custom originated in the law of Moses. And it surrounded this very type of transaction as it related to the Leverite marriage. That is, that when a man died not having children, his brother was called to take that woman to have a child with her, and that child would take the name of the deceased man so that his name, his family, wouldn't perish in Israel. It was the Leverite law. However, if he didn't want to do it, if she wasn't desirable, or if for some reason he just didn't want to do and fulfill this role as a Leverite brother, Well, then there was a custom that would have to take place in order for him to be relieved of that duty. It's Deuteronomy chapter 25, and it's verses 9 and 10. If he refuses, it says, then take his brother's, or it says, then his brother's wife shall come to him in the presence of the elders, remove his sandal from his foot, spit in his face, and answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who will not build up his brother's house. And his name shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal removed. Now that's the custom, but there's some differences in what's taking place here in Ruth between, you know, 
this and what was written about in Moses. First of all, he is not the brother of Malon. So he's, he's, a, he's a more distant relative. He's not the immediate brother of him. Uh, thus, he's not required um, to do this under the Levite structure. Uh, also, another difference is that Ruth is not here right now. No loogie. He doesn't have to hear the sound, you know, <laughs> and then feel the, you know, you, you just give you something to think about there. <laughs> Though she might have had the right to claim it, she wasn't there to do it. She didn't operate that way. So no loogie, just a shoe. So there's some differences in this, but nevertheless, he takes off the shoe. And here's the symbolism. It's the saying, I'm removing my right to tread my foot upon that land. And Boaz would then keep that sandal as a token of the contract that this man relinquished his right and now he has the right to, uh, to, to buy her. And so we come to the closing of the deal now in verse 9. It so says, Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilion's and Mahlon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, Ruth, the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance, that the name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brethren and from his position at the gate. You are witnesses this day. And so here's the closing now where Boaz makes it official that he is going to claim his right of redemption, that he's going to purchase the field and the land from Naomi, and that he's going to acquire Ruth as his wife and, uh, and, and fulfill this duty in this. Now, we talked last week about how closely this picture, this story, parallels with our redemption through the greater than Boaz, that is Jesus Christ. He's a picture of our Savior, the one who's qualified to redeem. And we in the story are a picture of Ruth, the bride of Christ, those who he came to redeem. We began developing that picture. But here as we see the closing of this rite of redemption, we see the culmination of the picture and how this redemption prefigures our redemption through Christ. Here's how it works. When God made Adam in the Garden of Eden, he gave him authority and dominion over all of the planet. He essentially handed to Adam the title deed of the earth. He said, have dominion over all things, fill the earth, populate it, and subdue it. And Adam was given the right to the world. To dress and keep the garden was his principal duty, and he had oversight over the planet. It says in Psalm 8 that God set man over the works of his hands, thus making man the legal heir or the legal possessor of the planet, the earth. However, Adam mortgaged the world. When he fell into sin in Genesis chapter 3 and Eve was beguiled by the serpent and Adam took the fruit from her and they sinned, they relinquished their right. They lost it at that time. The earth was no longer under Adam's feet. It was sold in sin and it was then transferred to none other than the devil. He took possession over it. That's why in Luke chapter 4, when Jesus was tempted by Satan in the wilderness for 40 days, when Satan came to him and he said, if you'll just simply bow down and worship me, then I will give you all of the kingdoms of the world. It says that he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. said, if you will bow down, I will give it to you. For it has been given to me, Satan said, 
Jesus didn't argue. And he said, I will give it to whoever I want, and all will be yours if you'll simply bow down and worship me. And Jesus, of course, said, it is written. You know, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. But Satan was basically saying, hey, there's a way for you to obtain your objective without the cross. He would essentially win if he did that. and Jesus wasn't going to have it. But the point is that Satan claimed dominion over the earth, and he was right. Jesus didn't argue. He came to redeem that which was lost by Adam. Now, the end of the story or the completion of the picture is in Revelation chapter 5. And if you want to keep a finger here, it will be up on the screen, but if you want to see it for yourself, it's easy to find Revelation chapter 5 in verse 1. What do we see? We see the apostle John in heaven. And he's seeing all of everything from a heavenly perspective. He's caught up in the spirit. It's revelation. It's the end times things and what's taking place. And it says in verse 1, John speaking, he says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back that was sealed with seven seals. Now, a scroll that would be written on both sides was a title deed. It spoke of a piece of real estate. It was the deed to property. And here's what it would be if it was written on both sides. On one side would be the survey of the land. That is a description of what the possession was to be, in this case, planet Earth. And on the back side, what would be written would be the conditions for redemption. In other words, if you mortgaged your property, if you had the property, the deed would be written on one side. It would just describe the property. But if you sold it because you fell on hard times and had to mortgage it, then on the back side, the requirements to redeem the property would be written. They must pay this amount of money and all of the fine print, yada, yada, signed by whoever, Esquire the third, uh, you know, whatever. And then, and then so on and so forth. And so what you have here is this deed to the earth. And notice what happens with it. Verse 2, it says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look on it. So the angel asks and said, Who is able to meet the terms of redemption? And the answer comes back, No one. No one. There's not one person who can meet the terms of redeeming what was lost. And notice John's response in verse 4. So I wept much, because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Now, what were the conditions of redemption? What was written on the backside of that deed, the terms that had to be met in order for the world to be redeemed back to its rightful place? You know what the conditions were? The law. It was the law that was given by Moses on Mount Sinai. If it was sold in sin, it must be redeemed in righteousness. And thus God gave through Moses a covenant. It was the covenant of the law. There were 10 commands that were laid upon man and 614 other ordinances, dietary, civil, and otherwise, that would be required to be kept in order to redeem the world back to its initial state. But here's the catch. It's in the terms. It's in the fine print. It's in order for it to happen, those terms have to be met perfectly without any fault at all. And That's why it was impossible. That's why the answer was, who is worthy? And the answer was, no one is worthy because no one can keep 
the law of God. You break and violate the law before you're even old enough to be cognizant of what it says. Therefore, you're already disqualified. You're disqualified from being able to redeem the world before you even can understand the terms of that redemption. And that was the case from Adam and Eve all the way down through history, even to the present day and us sitting here. Every single person that ever lived is born in sin and we've already failed to meet the requirements necessary to keep the law. It can't be done. It's impossible. And that's the problem with the law. The law requires perfection. And the law doesn't care about people. It only cares about performance and seeing that performance perfectly played out. And that's it. Now, if that were the end of the story, then every one of us here could just begin to weep much, just like John. Because we would have no hope. We would be completely lost. Our planet would descend into the chaos that Satan will ultimately bring upon it. And in the process, we will be bought and burned, so to speak, just as you know, the other kinsmen could have done perhaps to Ruth. He gets it all and we lose everything in the process. And the result of that would be weeping. And John understood that when he saw this. That's why he wept. What? There's no one. There's nothing. But wait, there's more. There's more. Verse five, it says, but one of the elders said to me, do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose the seven seals. See, there was another covenant. In John chapter 1, verse 17, John wrote and he said, For the law, that first covenant, came by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. There was a new covenant. There's a new way. There's a glimmer of hope. There's a redeemer. There's someone who can meet the requirements of that law. You say, but wait a minute. How can we, you and I that are born in sin, how can we be released from the claim that the law has upon our life? The answer is in a very short parable that Jesus told in Matthew chapter 13. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 Jesus said this, he said again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for the joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls. who, When he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Now, some over the years have looked at that parable and said, Well, we're the merchant man, and we sell everything to buy Christ. Not so. Because if that were the case, then your salvation would be by works. It would be dependent upon you giving up everything in order to acquire him. That's not how it is. What did Boaz say to Ruth? He said, you rest, I'll work. See, the merchant man was Jesus Christ. And the pearl, the treasure, was you. It was me. He looked at the field, this planet, He saw the deed and what it was, and he saw that we were attached to it, but yet we were lost, in danger of being bought and burned, lost forever. And so he left the majesty of heaven, the glory of his father, and he came to this earth, and he personally met the requirements that were necessary to redeem the world. He became flesh and dwelt among us, a descendant of Adam, a member of our family, meeting requirement number one. He went through his whole walk in life on earth without ever sinning, being tempted 
in every point like we are, but yet never sinning, thus obtaining the right to purchase, the right to redeem, having the purchase price and being debt-free himself. And in that he gave up himself willingly upon the cross and said, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. He showed that he was willing. And thus he successfully removed man from under the weight and the penalty of the law and bought the world so that he could gain us. That's what Jesus Christ did for us. He is our Boaz. He removed us from under the curse of the law and he redeemed us by his love. Now there are three words for redeem in the New Testament. They would redeem slaves for three purposes and there was a different definition for each redemption. The first redeem, you would buy a slave in order to trade it. It was an investment. The second one is that you would buy it in order to use it for that slave to be a servant in your house. But neither one of those are the redemption that we've received. It's the third. The third is to purchase in order to set free. And that's the redemption that we've received at the hand of our Savior, our greater than Boaz. He bought the land, not because he was interested in the real estate, but because whoever gets the land gets the girl. And you were the girl. Two points on this before we move on to the rest of the chapter. Number one is this, is that God is interested in you not in religion. Do you understand that? See, the law requires religious works. The law is based upon performance. How, would, how are you doing? How's your prayer life? How many times this year, this week, have you been to church? How many chapters and verses have you read recently? How are you doing in your devotional deeds and the things that you're supposed to be doing? How, how are you doing? And, and, and that's all performance. It's legalism. It's not what he's interested in. He's interested in you. He brought you out from underneath that, and he died so that you could know and experience him. Now, how do you know when someone's still under the law, when they haven't really come close to Christ yet? Here's how you know, is that they don't care about people. They care about performance. We see it in the Pharisees ever so clearly. They were all about performance. You see, the man was blind he met Jesus and his sight was given to him. And what did the Pharisees say? What day was that done on? Did he do that on Saturday? We are going to crucify. No concern for the person. It was the performance. Was it done according to the law? You gave that man, that Galilean itinerant preacher, 300 pence, a year's wages worth of perfume. You broke it upon him. You're a harlot. You're a prostitute. And if he knew who you were that was worshiping that way, then he would have rebuked you to your faith. This woman's life was changed. She was redeemed. She met Jesus. And it was the least she could do is to break the contents of her life upon him and to pour it out over him. She understood that he died for her, not for her performance and how well she'd keep the law. Why are you around them? They would ask Jesus. Why do you eat in that house? Why do you company with those people? They're sinners. They don't match the requirements. They don't measure the deeds. They've been thrown out of our synagogues and temples. And if you understood that, you wouldn't be around them. They didn't care about people. It was only performance. He raised the dead. And they said, for that, he must die. How ridiculous is that? A man who could open eyes, cleanse leprosy, raise the dead, and yet they said, he must die. See, the religion, law, it doesn't care about people at all. But that's not Jesus. He cares about you. He didn't die so that you could fill church pews and do good deeds and measure your works 
and say, these are my merits and what I've achieved. He died so that you could know him and experience him and one day be with him and be his bride forever. That's why he died for you. Point number two on this and the greater point is this. At the start of this study, I said to you, do you ever want something really, really bad? So bad it keeps you up at night? And how Boaz wanted Ruth? Well, listen, God wanted you. You kept God up at night. And he couldn't stop thinking, what do I have to do in order to get them? And he did it. He sent his son to die on a cross so that he could meet the requirements necessary and remove the obstacles in order to gain you. He put his son on a cross for you. It's the picture of what Jesus did. It's pictured here in Ruth. Well, what are the outcomes back in Ruth chapter 4 as we finish up this chapter and close out our study of uh, the book of Ruth? What are the outcomes? Three things. First of all, the blessings. Notice in verse 11, it says, And all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. The first blessing that they give is upon the woman Ruth herself. They pray a blessing over here, and that blessing is that may she be like Leah and Rachel, the two wives of Jacob, who gave birth ultimately to the 12 sons that became the fathers, the 12 tribes of Israel. And guess what? She will. She'll become just like them because just as they, those two women, produced the nation, Ruth and Boaz will produce the messianic and royal family through which ultimately Jesus Christ will come into the world. As they birth the nation, she births a family that God will use to bless the world. The second blessing is towards Boaz. It says at the end of the verse there, it says, And may you, towards Boaz, prosper in Ephrathah, which was the name of Bethlehem, the ancient name, and be famous in Bethlehem. So their prayer of blessing upon him is for wealth and fame. The word for prosperous there, it means a force of wealth, virtue, value, or strength. That's a great thing to pray upon someone's life. And then the word for famous means a position of honor, authority, and character. And that's exactly what Boaz was and what Boaz would ultimately be his legacy even into eternity. And then the third blessing is upon their family. First on Ruth, second on Boaz, and now on their family in verse uh, 12. He says, may your house, that means your family, be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring which the Lord will give you from this young woman. Now, wait a minute. This is puzzling. There's a little bit of history here. This is kind of an obscure, a little bit of an odd wish for their offspring, for their family. What does this mean that may you be like the house of Tamar or Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah? What's the deal and what's going on uh, here with all of this? Well, here's why they brought this up. Because Perez was born out of a Leverite situation. See, if you think all the way back to Genesis chapter 38, Judah was one of the 12 sons of Jacob. The tribe of Judah is named after Judah. And Judah had a son, and that son was given a wife named Tamar, the same Tamar that's mentioned here in this verse. But that son died before they had offspring. And so Tamar was given to the next brother. But guess what? He died too. So two brothers died, still no offspring. Judah had a third son, and Tamar said, hey, Judah, cough him up. And Judah said, nuh-uh, you, two of my boys have already died. I'm going to hang on to this one for a while. Let him grow up a bit, and I'll give him to you when he's older. But Judah never did. And so Tamar took things into her own hands. Judah's wife died. 
Judah was conducting business in another city and Tamar got word of it. And so she dressed like a prostitute. And she went to an open square in that city and Judah went to her, propositioned her, made a declaration, said, hey, what will you, what, what is your price? What do you want? And she said, give me a flock from your, from your or a, ch- a kid, a goat from your flock. And he said, well, they're not here. They're in the field. She said, give me your ring, your signet ring, your identity. Give me your staff, your authority. Give me your bracelets, your possessions. Give me those things as collateral and you bring me the goat tomorrow. And Judah said, "Huh? why not? He gives her the ring. He gives her the staff. He gives her his bracelets and he does the deed. She disappears. She never comes the next day. She takes his ring, his bracelets, his staff. But guess what? She's with child. She gets pregnant and word comes back to Judah three months later. Hey, Judah, your daughter-in-law Tamar is pregnant by harlotry. And Judah says, bring her here and burn her at the stake. Wise man that he is. She comes out. The fire is lit. She brings a bag. She opens the bag and she said, the man who owns these three things, the staff, these rings, this bracelet, it's him. He's the man that got me pregnant. Ooh. That's reality TV right there. I think they could have got a contract, you know, for that one. <laughs> Judah says, she's been more righteous than I. She was the righteous one because I didn't give her my son when it was my responsibility to give her my youngest son to raise up seed unto my name. Well, Tamar gives birth to twins. The twins are two men. One is named Zerah, and the other is this Perez who is mentioned here in this verse. It's the blessing that they pray upon. May your house be like Perez. Well, why does he say that? Here's why. Because Zerah, the one of the two twins, was actually the firstborn. His hand popped out. When the, of the birth canal. And when the nursemaid saw that hand, it says that she tied a scarlet thread around his hand. But then something amazing happened. He pulled it back in. You ever seen that happen in the delivery room? I've spent the delivery room five times. Never seen that happen. <laughs> and then the other brother, Perez, came out. After, or, or first, before the guy with the, so, so the one whose hand came out first, legally the firstborn. He's marked, he's branded, the scarlet thread is on him. But Perez pulls him back in and says, no, I'm going out first. And he broke through. So what's the story? What's the deal? It's a picture. See, just as Perez, the son of Judah, broke through and said, I'm going to be the preeminent one, even though it's not my right. That's exactly what the tribe of Judah did amongst the sons of Jacob. See, it was Reuben who was the firstborn. He was disqualified. Then it was Joseph. Now, I understand I might be losing some of you. Just hang on. It's all coming back together in a second. Then it was going to be Joseph. He got the coat of many colors, but Judah said, no, it's going to be me. And ultimately, who would be the family through whom the Messiah would come? It would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and loose the seals. And so here's the prayer. Here's the blessing that they're putting upon the family of Boaz and Ruth. They're saying, may he, may this family, may this seed break through and become the chief family, the royal family, the messianic family in Israel. That's the blessing that they're praying upon Ruth and Boaz. And that's exactly what is going to take place. And so a blessing upon their family. And so the outcome of this situation is blessing. Outcome number two, the outcome one is blessings. Outcome number two is beauty for ashes. Did you know that our God makes beauty out of ashes? Realize with me for just a minute that there are four 
train wrecks that led us to this place where we are right here in these verses. Four disasters that were ultimately redeemed to bring us to this glorious outcome. Number one is Judah and Tamar. That was a train wreck. I mean, here you have the son of Jacob who hires his daughter-in-law as a prostitute and has twins with her. That's a train wreck. It was a train wreck. But yet if it never happened, then we don't get here. It, It wouldn't happen. See, it was through Perez that ultimately this descendant, this line came, as we're going to see in a minute. The second train wreck is Lot with his corrupted daughters. Remember when Lot came out of Sodom and he hides in a cave and his two daughters think the end of the world is here. They say, it's the end of the world. We're not going to survive. We're the only people left. We better get pregnant by our dad so that there's people to repopulate the earth. And so the two daughters of Lot get pregnant from their dad in that cave after getting him drunk. That's a train wreck. But do you realize that the offspring of one of those daughters would become the Moabite people? If that train wreck didn't happen, there would be no Ruth. It wouldn't have happened for the story. Third train wreck is Rahab, the harlot. Remember her from Joshua chapter 2? Joshua comes to the city of Jericho. the, the, The spies come. They find a harlot's house. She hides them. She sends them away. Her life is spared, and she becomes assimilated into the house of Israel. But a A harlot? Rahab? I I, I heard some statistics recently about the life of a prostitute. They interviewed a woman who lived most of her life in that sex trade, and they said, well, what was it like living in that life? Because we hear a lot about it. It's glamorized on TV. It's accepted in a lot of places culturally. What's it like? Her response was, it's 2% adventure and 98% disgusting filth. That's the kind of life that is. What was it like to be Rahab? But yet she was redeemed. She was accepted, she was assimilated, and without Ruth, there would be no Boaz. I'm sorry, without Rahab, there would be no Boaz. Rahab was Boaz's mother. And then a train wreck number four was Naomi's backslide. She said, I went out full, and I came again empty. I lost everything while I was sojourning in the land of Moab. My husband, my two sons, everything I had was gone, but if she hadn't, then Ruth never would have made it back to Bethlehem to meet Boaz. Now, I find it interesting that God took probably the four most disgusting situations in the Old Testament thus far. He threw them all into a pot, stirred them around, and out comes Ruth and Boaz, the seed of the Messianic family. What's the message? Here's the message for you and me. is that God makes beauty out of ashes. He takes our past. He takes the things that we regret the most, the things that we think are a disqualifier for us and that will never allow us to be anything in his kingdom or do anything for his name. And he throws them into his son, stirs them around, and he turns it into something so glorious. And he redeems it and makes it beautiful. And that gives me a lot of hope because I've done a lot of things that make me feel disqualified, like I could never truly be the fullness of what God would have. It's not true. Now listen, on your own, you can't. But in him, you can. So he makes beauty for ashes. And then the third outcome is that he gives blessing for bitterness. Notice in verse 13. It says, So Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. And when he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. And may his name be famous in Israel. 
And may he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is better to you than seven sons, has borne him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. Also the neighbor women gave him a name, saying, There is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed, and he is the father of Jesse, the father of David. He gives blessing for bitterness. Remember when Naomi came out, came back to Bethlehem? She said, no longer call me Naomi, pleasant. Call me Mara, bitter. I went out pleasant, but I've come back empty. I am nothing. Well, what's the outcome now that she's seen the full cycle of God's plan of redemption within her life? First of all, she's called to be a part of Boaz's family. She's assimilated into a rich man's wealth. She's going to be well cared for for the rest of her life. It also says there that she has someone in her life who loves her unconditionally. Do you have someone in your life that loves you unconditionally? If you do, you are wealthy beyond imagination. If you don't, you have the ability to be that for someone else and to be a source of blessing and wealth to a degree that's immeasurable in any other way. She says, Ruth, who loves you, is your daughter-in-law. And the last thing that it says about Naomi, this blessing for bitterness, is that she is given a second chance. You remember the names of her first two kids? Malon and Chilion, their names meant sickly and pining. And that's what their lives ultimately became. They wasted away and they died. Her first opportunity at being a mother was completely lost. It was ruined. Now she has a grandson whose name is Obed. You know what Obed, Obed means? It means worshiper. See, she ruined the first time around, but now she gets a second chance. And she gets to raise a worshiper. See, even if we've messed up the first time around, we tried and failed and things didn't work out or it didn't happen. The story's never over with God. He can always take our bitterness and turn it into blessing, which he does. And then the chapter closes with the genealogy of Perez. It says, now this is the genealogy of Perez, who begot Hezron, who begot Ram, who begot Abinadab, who begot Nashon, who begot Salmon, who begot Boaz, who begot Obed, who begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David, which is the ligament that ties Judah to the kingly tribe that will ultimately bring forth the Messiah. What's the ultimate lesson that we learn here in the book of Ruth? That he can work all things together for good. That nothing is too hard for God. God brought you here tonight to hear this Bible study, this message. And it could be that for you, you're visiting, it was generically edifying you say, good stuff, good information, neat picture, awesome poetry. Thanks. Good time. Good stuff. Doesn't really connect. Or it could be that tonight you reflect someone within this story and God brought you here to talk to you. You might be a younger Elimelech and Naomi in the story. The things of God aren't important to you. Who he is, his word You've got your own life to worry about and those priorities are more important right now. You need to do what's best for you and you need to go where you want and do what you want. That's fine. You have the right to live that way. But here's the problem. Is that you have absolutely no covering when the storm of life comes. Jesus said that there would be storms and if your foundation wasn't secure that you will be sideswiped and wiped out within those storms. Our God, as we saw earlier in the study, is a God of strategy. He plans, he prepares, he makes a way, even if he has to open the Red Sea. 
And when the storm comes in our lives and we find ourselves wiped out and sideswept, when we have the covering of Christ within our lives, God always has a place for us to land prepared. But if you don't have Christ and you say the things of God aren't important to me, I'm not going to seek first him or his kingdom. Well, that storm is going to come for you, but you're not going to find a place to land. It's not going to work out. It's not wise to be the older Naomi, I'm sorry, the younger Elimelech and Naomi. You'll watch, you'll go out full, but you'll come again empty. You might be an older, perhaps a more experienced Naomi. You find yourself sitting on that pile of broken pieces of life. You've been through the ringer. Here's what you need right now. You need to know this, that God loves you. He cares personally for you. Not one hair from your head falls to the ground without him knowing it. He has foreseen every day of your life before you lived any of it, and he's not finished yet. He is going to do something for you and in you, and what you need to do is hang on and wait for him to work things out. Or you might be a Ruth and Orpah situation. You're sitting in the fields of Moab. You have yet to give your life to Christ at all. You don't know how things are coming out. You don't know where you're going. You're trying to figure out what to do with your life. Orpah and Ruth paint a contrast for us. They both had the opportunity to come and seek refuge from the God of Israel. Orpah said no. She said, you know what? I want to stay here in Moab. I don't like the restrictions of Israel. I don't like the stigma attached to being called by the name of the God of Israel. And that's just not a life for me. I'm going to stay here in Moab. You do what you want, Ruth. Ruth said, I'm going. What's the outcome when we look at it from the end of the story, looking backwards? Where's Orpah? She's back in Moab trying to figure out still, make heads or tails of her life. Where's Ruth? She's driving a Bentley on the bluffs of Bethlehem, looking back over across the Dead Sea, saying, wow, God, look what you were able to do with my life. I was unsure, it was unsettling, but I've given my life to you, and look at the outcome of it. Look what you've been able to do for me. The lesson of Ruth is that all things work together for good. But the question of Ruth and what it leaves for us to consider for ourselves as we close is for whom are we living? Who are you living for? Have you given your life to God? Do you belong to him? Have you been brought into that contractual place of redemption where you belong to him and your eternity is settled? Your place is secure with him in heaven. Have you been there yet? Here's what you need to know. And the worship team can come. You need to know that he loves you. He's interested in you. And he's willing to appear old and antiquated and shrouded in religion and weird. But he's not the one that's on trial. You are. He's met the requirements. He is who he is. He's the king of glory. You are a lost sinner. And he calls you to come to him. He's already provided every detail and paid, lifted every obstacle, every restriction for you to be bought by him. But the ball's in your court. And that feeling of wanting something really bad, that's what he has towards you. Father, we just thank you so much for all that we've seen, all that we've heard, all that we've experienced and felt as we've studied these passages and looked over this portion of Ruth. And tonight, Lord, as we close this study, we're in awe of who you are. Who are we, O oh Lord, that the God of glory would step down from his place in heaven, be willing to put on human flesh, do what we never could, 
die in our place when we shook our fist at you and rebelled against you. And then to bid us to come. We're completely unworthy, O Lord. And we thank you so much, Lord, that you were willing to do that, that while we were yet your enemies, you died for us. And that not only did you write our name in your book, Lord, but you've given a purpose and a plan for us. And there's a reward that awaits in a glorious kingdom and a king. And we get to be the bride of Christ and occupy that most incredible place in heaven. And Lord, we're so grateful that you've given us the faith and now the wisdom to live out that life as we wait for your return. Oh Lord, help us to understand and know just a little bit more of who you are. We thank you so much. And we love you, Lord, tonight. In Jesus' name. Before I say amen, he has removed every obstacle that stands in the way of your salvation. Colossians chapter 2, verse 14 says that he has wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. And the Bible says that God has demonstrated his love towards you, and that while you were still a sinner, at your furthest point of alienation from God, that it was then that he died for you. He came to you with a declaration of love, and now he gives to you an invitation to live. You have the opportunity to simply receive what Jesus Christ has given and what he's done for you. And I want to give you an opportunity to do that tonight. To simply say, God, I see you. I hear your voice. I recognize and understand what you did for me. And I want to receive that invitation. Here's how you do it. In a minute, the musicians are going to start to play. And as they do, you get to, like Ruth, stand and make a public declaration of a willingness to be received by our Boaz, our Jesus. And so the musicians will play, and I want you to just come forward right down here in the front. And then I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And it's a prayer of you giving your life to God, turning from the past, the old, the Moabite, the filth, and coming into a relationship with Jesus Christ where your sins are completely washed away, where your name is written in His book, where His Holy Spirit moves in and lives inside your life and turns the lights on inside. He begins cleansing away everything that was old and working in everything that was new. You come into a relationship with God and the world begins to make sense. And it's all been bought and paid for. And your call now, he's given the invitation, your place is to respond to it and say, Lord, I believe, I receive, I'm willing. You died for me, you took my place, and now I want to come. I want to be completely yours. And I'll lead you in a prayer. We'll pray. God's going to move into your life. You're going to see him begin to work in you. And a whole new world begins for you. And so you're here tonight. You want to receive Christ. The musicians are going to play right now. This is your opportunity. Come. Don't be embarrassed. Don't be ashamed. Even if it's just one person, you say, this is my time. I need Jesus Christ. And so the whole church, we're going to be praying for you. And we're going to ask God, and he's going to meet with us here. So let's do that. You can come forward. You guys can start, and you guys can come. Come to Jesus tonight.